Hello, friends. Welcome to episode number five of the Delgado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and how to take action. Today, we're honored to learn from Dr. Walter Moberly, a brilliant and extremely humble Old Testament theologian and professor of theology and biblical interpretation at Durham University. He was such a delight to talk with and learn from, and I know you're gonna love hearing what he has to share today. Dr. Moberly earned his master's degree at Oxford University and a master's degree and PhD at Cambridge University. He's the author of numerous books, including a brand new one called The God of the Old Testament, Encountering the Divine in Christian Scripture. In today's episode, Dr. Morbley talks with us about his spiritual journey and what led him from studying the classics and ancient languages to pursue biblical studies and ordination in the Church of England. He also talks with us about how he applies critical analysis to the Bible, while also understanding the Bible spiritually. He then shares with us examples of how he applies his academic and spiritual insights to Old Testament stories like the conquest of Canaan, the story of Rahab, the book of Jeremiah, and the many laments in the Psalms. It's a blessing to hear how he has prayerfully read and applied scholarly analysis to these popular biblical passages. And one of the themes of today's discussion is based on some words shared by Bishop Keith Sutton to Dr. Moberly. The Bible is not a fortress to be defended, but a mansion to explore, to live in, and invite others in. And Dr. Moberly certainly invites us all to seek the richness, the beauty, and mystery of scripture in today's episode. Here's our conversation. And before we begin, I wanted to ask you um, a little bit about your background with how you began to become an academic reader of the Bible. And during that process, if that at all hurt and or helped with your own personal faith. I mean, what what brought me to the Bible was coming to a living faith as a as a student. I'd been, you know, sort of brought up in a sort of nominal, formal Christian education. I mean, back in the 50s, the local county primary school had us um, not just, you know, prayers at the beginning of the day, but singing a hymn at the end of the day. Um, So in a sense, a Christian framework had always been there, but it it never meant anything, so to speak, Um, until it came alive when I was a a student and undergraduate at Oxford, um, where I remember walking back to my room in the, in the small hours of the morning after a long talk with someone, sort of looking up at a starry sky and saying, now I see that sense that God was there and made all the difference. And that in a sense, brought everything to life. And, you know, the things that had previously just been, you know, part of the furniture, suddenly, hey, these things are great. You know, the hymns I'd I'd always been singing, you know, suddenly they started meaning something. And I I was told, uh, read the Bible. And, you know, I, I had a sort of very modest knowledge of the Gospels and, you know, one or two stories of the Old Testament, but not much more. Um, so I, you know, being reasonably biddable and not very imaginative, I began at the beginning. You know, I started at Genesis 1 and went on through. Wow. And, you know, there were places I you know, sort of gritted my teeth, but I was resolved I was going to read it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and one of the things that struck me very early was a sense of great depth, something deep 
something wise, something life-giving, something strange, which I, I couldn't remotely articulate, but I just sensed, gosh, there's something here. Now, I mean, at the same time, I, 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 I had a very old-fashioned education. I caught the end of an education you can no longer get, in which I started learning Latin at the age of eight and three quarters, oh. Greek at the age of ten, you know, sort of brought up where classics was sort of basic to the curriculum. Um, so I had, I've always had a you know, sort of knowledge of ancient languages, um, some knowledge of the ancient world. Um, I, I read classics in my first degree at Oxford. So, you know, some sense that, you know, antiquity wasn't just a long time ago and strange, but, you know, <laughs> there yeah. were worthwhile things in it. You know, that may have helped in in reading the Old Testament and the New. I mean, I, I read it all. <laughs> um, and, and I suppose I'd, I'd always been sort of reasonably good at school, reasonably, you know, good at scholarly things. And as I started reading the Bible, I suppose it was partly that I had a sense of, well, can I articulate, learn to articulate some of what I'm sensing? But also, can I find some way of handling the difficulties? Because, of course, you know, lots of things in the Bible are odd to the modern reader. Um, you know, I mean, sometimes you get so used to them, you cease to notice. But, um, you know, when you're first reading, you think, oh, oh. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Though, though I think first time through, there's lots of things you don't pick up. You know, one, one, one isn't attentive. You know, as a scholar, you learn to be attentive and you know what to look for because people have told you when you just read through. Um, I probably missed most of the interesting bits first time, but, you know, I, I, I picked up enough. And it was when I finished my, my first degree in classics um, uh, and I'd had four years at, at Oxford doing that and starting to, to read the Bible through and to to grow in faith, that, in fact, I went for ordination in the um, Anglican Episcopalian Church um, and was accepted, went for training, uh, ordination training to Cambridge and did a, a degree in theology as part of my ordination training, which was quite difficult in ways we, I may come back to. But then I postponed ordination to to do a PhD because my my print, the principal of my college said, you know, you've got a good academic track record and you, know, you should take things further. So I said, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, John A.T. Honest to God Robinson was in Cambridge at that time and had a had a research studentship in his gift and he gave it to me. Um, so, you know, there was no problem with the finances for, for doing a doctorate. And I started off actually with him in the New Testament before I decided actually really preferred the Old Testament and so uh, went back in time. So I did a PhD. I, I then got ordained and was in parish ministry for four years, um, but then returned to, well, I thought I'd always be torn between a sort of practical, you know, high-end minister on the ground, Christian faith, and the scholarly desire to, to dig a little and try and understand better. But a position came up at Durham University, um, in 1985 and I got it and 35 years later I'm the guy they couldn't get rid of here I still am <laughs> I love that 
Um, I want to know, like, so as you were going back to that moment where you really felt God's presence, you looked at the starry sky and you felt there's something here, there's something there. And that kind of brought a lot of inspiration for you to like start studying the Bible, obviously get serious about your faith, join a church, um, go to, I mean, go to seminary, learn the, the spiritual side of Christianity, all that's happening. At the same time, you have a strong background in the, the classic literature, uh, Milton, Chaucer, uh, knowing how to read the ancient texts, having understanding of different cultures, authorial intent. And now you're now applying that insight to the Bible. And you're coming at the Bible now with like a new lens, right? Because like for a lot of us, including myself, um, when I approach the Bible, I don't have that sort of training, right? So I see the Bible in one way and you have a different lens because of your background, your understanding of, of ancient culture and languages. And so I'm curious about, as you began to critically study the Bible, um, how you dealt with some of the, the difficult texts that you approached, where maybe it challenged your faith a bit. Yeah, I, I mean, I think in, in the first case, it, it wasn't the difficult passages as such that bothered me. Um, it was the nature of modern scholarly study of the Bible, because what you might call the paradigm of modern biblical scholarship that was formed in the 17th and 18th centuries um, is to read the Bible as ancient history, to read the biblical documents in their world of origin. And, you know, there's a kind of obvious sense in that, you know, they are ancient texts, and therefore to ask how they came about in their world of origin makes sense and sheds light. But I found that the standard questions and answers didn't really address what made the Bible interesting for me. That in a sense, when I read it you know, as a young believer, I, I was sort of asking the question of God um, and, you know, what might this mean for how I should live, what I should do, what should I hope for, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and I was being asked to write essays on, well, you know, did Paul write Ephesians or what was the date and authorship of the book of Deuteronomy? And I thought, well, yeah, you know, th th these are legit questions, but... There was a certain kind of so what, um, you know, mm. even when I come out with an answer, there f it felt like there was a kind of disconnect between the questions of academic work and you know, sort of the questions of Christian faith. And there was a memorable moment one evening early in my ordination training when I saw, well, for some reason, I, I noticed that there were two books on my desk. Um, one was the first volume of a revised history of the Jewish people in the age of Jesus Christ. Um, 
It was a, a German classic, Emil Schurer, and it had been revised by Vermesh and Miller, you know. So it was a sort of major scholarly resource, you know, the, the history of the New Testament world and, you know, meticulous, careful, thorough scholarship. And, you know, I've done ancient history part of my classics. So, you know, I, I understood that. But next to it, there was the book, uh, The Hiding Place. The, it's a kind of testimony and autobiography by Corrie ten Boom, um, a Dutch woman who, uh, whose family helped Jews in occupied Holland. She ended up um, in a concentration camp. Um, others in her family died. She herself survived and then had a Christian ministry of reconciliation subsequently. Um, and, you know, her book represented, you know, that's the kind of thing that um, you know, Christian faith is about. <laughs> and I looked at the two books and I thought, well, the one, uh, the history of the Jewish people, represented sort of scholarly rigour and depth, but sort of did nothing for me faith-wise. The other book was exciting faith-wise, but had na nothing to say to sort of scholarly questions and concerns. Yeah. And the danger, I think, for any Christian studying the Bible, is that you can become sort of schizophrenic. I mean, I see this sometimes with you know, people training for ordination, that, you know, what they, their biblical studies are kind of boot camp, you know, they've they got to do it, they've got to tick some boxes, but then they go back to reading the Bible in the way that they were reading it before they ever studied, <laughs> um, because the way they were already reading it, you know, addressed questions of faith, and, you know, the scholarly questions, well, he didn't care. So, um, but you become schizophrenic. And I mm. really, really didn't want to become schizophrenic. And so you could say that what I've been doing in my scholarly career is trying to find a way of bringing those two books <laughs> on my desk together. You know, the, the scholarly rigour and depth, but also sort of the existential life excitement you know this, this actually matters and makes a difference how can one hold those together I, I think the other thing just at a very early stage again sorry this is sort of reminiscing but it is actually quite important for you know understanding what what moves me um was my theological college principal a wonderful man um keith sutton because when i first came to a living faith like like i think many I was inclined to be a bit defensive about my faith in the Bible, you know, sort of, here's the truth, yes. and, you know, sort of, keep your hands That's right. Off. How dare you ask sort of questions about <laughs> it? Yes. I've got the wrong thing here, so, you know, um, a very, you know, a, a, a sort of defensive mentality came, came quite naturally, and that was part of the context I was in. And it was uh, Keith Sutton, my college principal, who I don't think he ever directly addressed the question, but I could see that for him, theology and the study of the Bible was not a fortress to be defended, but a mansion to live in, to explore, and to invite others in too. Thank you.
And so he was the one who helped me see that if I'm you know, going to make progress, you know, simply being defensive really isn't a good way of doing it. <laughs> um, but if one's going to explore the mansion, then there is real you know, exploration work to be done if you're going to sort of inhabit something that's immensely big and rich and old but living, um, you know, that's going to take a bit of time. And I'm, I'm grateful because I've been given that time. You know, I've been given a university position where I've been trusted to explore in ways that wouldn't always be possible because some universities have sort of set curricula which is, you know, you must teach this. And Durham was much more flexible, and they allowed me, once I got played in, to start trying to reshape things, ask different questions, do things differently. E even if it wasn't, you know, I wasn't always clear where I was going, but I knew that I, I had to make a journey, so to speak. So, you know, it, it, and one of the things it means is that although, for example, I love ancient history and I take, you know, the ancient historical nature of the biblical documents seriously. And these were written by folk in Hebrew and Greek a very long time ago. <laughs> um, the agenda of studying the Bible according to sort of the questions of the ancient historian are no longer the agenda. They are some of the questions that are helpful or can be helpful, but they're not the only questions. I mean, in many areas of study, there's been, you know, what's sometimes called a literary turn um, away from sort of looking at the origins of texts to, you know, but how do we read them as meaningful in themselves, <laughs> so to speak? So, you know, because however they were formed, you know, what we've got <laughs> is, you know, a literary whole. So, you know, I've done essays on, you know, the and I studying ancient Greek and Homer, you know, how many people wrote Homer and how was it written and so on. Well, yeah, OK, you can do all that. But that's not the same as just reading and imaginatively getting into, wow, these are some of the great and enduring stories. And also trying to learn what it means to ask questions about God and the interpretation of religious language um, in good ways. Because I think, particularly in our secularised culture, people often don't know how to handle religious language and biblical language and handle it immensely woodenly um, in ways that make for problems. Yeah, that's right. And that's that's really the the hard part, especially when we are reading the Bible and taking it seriously, meaning that we're we're trying to take out the commentaries and the maybe the different concordances or ways to understand the words. And what's hard sometimes is is those those passages that we struggle with, where maybe the the, the troubling passages for me are like when we read the story about the Israelites saying that God told them to go destroy the Canaanites, go into Canaan and destroy everything, everybody there. That's very very hard for me to comprehend. Yeah. And so as a person of faith and a person who believes that God is love and God commands us to love others, when I see these things that don't seem like a loving God would do that, it challenges my faith 
and then also challenged me as a critical reader of the Bible, like, well, what was actually happening here? Were the were the Israelites trying to showcase a um, a certain type of God who can just take over civilizations, wanted to show this dominant being? Um, so that's where I kind of struggle. And there's many passages like that in the Bible. I'm kind of curious, like, as you've like kind of navigated these difficult things that maybe um, challenge your own thinking on uh, faith or what the text is saying, how you've kind of navigated those periods. And, I mean, clearly the book of Joshua, um, the conquest of Canaan, you know, represents probably the uh, greatest difficulty for modern readers of the Old Testament. Let, let me say this. I mean, it doesn't directly answer the question, but it's a, a possible way in. The book of Joshua, um, which depicts the conquest of Canaan, is a much more surprising book than you would imagine. That is to say, if, you know, you think, well, it's a book about going and wipe out these terrible people, it would show the people being terrible and there would be a certain sort of glee or delight in, you know, we overcome right. them, we get rid of them or whatever. We don't find that in the book of Joshua. Um, the battle accounts are formulaic and brief in the extreme for the most part, apart from the Battle of Jericho. And there was never a battle like that battle. I mean, it's not a battle. I mean, it's about a procession and trumpets and walls falling down. I mean, that's the interest. It's not, I mean, the actual battle is holding a couple of verses, no interest at all. And the first person we meet in the book of Joshua um, in chapter two um, is Rahab. Now, not promising character, one would have thought. She's a Canaanite, she's a woman, and she's a prostitute. This doesn't feel promising. Mm. Uh, but the shelters, the Israelite spies, um, and in doing so, speaks to them in a way that acknowledges the God of Israel as the true God, such that although the Israelites were meant to wipe out everyone, Rahab and her family are spared. You know, there were meant to be no exceptions, but in fact, Rahab and her family, when Jericho falls, they are exempted. So, I mean, Rahab, very unpromising, but actually is exempted and becomes part of Israel. In chapter 7, directly after Jericho, the one sort of battle scene we get in some detail involves a guy called Achan, who's an Israelite of an impeccable pedigree from the tribe of Judah. You know, in a sense, if anyone is a sort of good insider, it's him. But he takes some of the spoil, problems arise, um, and it ends up that he and his family die just as Rahab and her family were preserved and became part of Israel. So what the story seems to be interested in is someone who's an outsider, a Canaanite, is actually able to recognize God and become part of Israel. Someone who's within Israel blows it and loses it all, i.e. it's not a simple, you know, we're right, they're wrong, us versus yeah. them. Yeah. I think there's something more interesting going on. And as I say, you know, most of the battle accounts, I mean, you know, they're clearly there, but they're, as I say, somewhat formulaic. So, you know, they were clearly the writer is telling of a known context 
you know, a, a known tradition in which you know, Israel came in and defeated the Canaanites and so on, um, and that many were put to death. But that's not the interest. Um, it's being used as, a, as the setting for, uh, I think, exploring questions of identity and faithfulness, and that the, the surprising outsider may actually be okay. The complacent insider could be in big trouble. Now, that doesn't solve all the problems, but it's just a way of, you know, trying to indicate that, you know, a careful reading of the book of Joshua doesn't fit the pattern of here are the good guys, there are the bad guys, and so on. And, I mean, indeed, the the preface to uh, the Battle of Jericho is the most you know, sort of famous uh, um, of all those things. Um, it's prefaced by a little passage where... Uh, Joshua encounters an angelic figure with a sword in his hand. And uh, when he sees this figure with a drawn sword, he asks the big question, are you one of us or one of our adversaries? I.e., whose side are you on? You look to be kind of significant. Are you with us? Are you on our side or theirs? And the answer is neither. Hmm. But he says, as commander of the army of the Lord, I've now come. And Joshua worships. And then you get this odd battle that ain't a battle. <laughs> the goings on around Jericho. But that little dialogue between Joshua and the angel, again, is, you know, you expect, oh, yeah, God's on our side. Yeah. And it's explicit. No, not on their side either. And it's not necessarily representative of the whole Old Testament. I think that. Are other bits where you know there are more sort of you know God on Israel's side, but you've already got there in you know one of the most difficult books. It seems to me a sort of a trailer for what becomes a, an absolutely mainstream understanding in Christian faith that the the significant question is not is God on our side, but are we on God's side? You know, it's not harnessing God to our purposes and priorities. I mean, though that comes very naturally. But how can we harness ourselves to God's purpose and priorities? Because God ain't there to back us up. We're here to try and learn what he wants so that we can be on his side, so to speak. I, I love how, I mean, this is an example of like living in the mansion that metaphor of like, yeah. there's so much more to see here. Yeah. Yes, there are some, definitely some very troubling bits, but also there's another theme here that you're pointing out. Like the bigger story is that the outsiders are brought in. Mm -hmm. And that that's like one of these themes that you're calling out. Like this is again, like living in that beautiful mansion, like the complexity that's there. Yeah. And I think the the other challenging bit is the idea that, a a God would, a loving God would want all these people killed. And I think about the infants and the women and that part of it is, as, as a Christian, very, very hard. Because I can't, right? I mean, because we believe that even if we see, you know, the God of Israel is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, you know, the God of the Old Testament is not a different yes. God from the God of the New, we nonetheless, as Christians, believe that we see God most clearly, most fully, most truly in Jesus, um, and in Jesus supremely in Gethsemane and Calvary 
and the Easter garden. Um, when Jesus goes through darkness, abandonment, you know, so, I mean, yeah. that's clearly the heart of it. And, you know, what Jesus gives after what he went through is at nobody's expense. You know, as it were, nobody loses out. I mean, we all must sacrifice a certain kind of pride, self-seeking, whatever, if we're actually to tune in and <laughs> make the most. Um, but clearly... The New Testament for Christians, you know, sounds, notes and goes deeper than does the old. Um, and, and it's one reason why, of course, you know, when Christians go to the Old Testament, we've often much more gone to, you know, books of prophecy. Um, not so much because they're predicting Jesus. I mean, that has been claimed, but it, it feels implausible in, <laughs> in certain ways. But one sees someone like Jeremiah who's called by God to be faithful. And he has 40 years in which almost nobody wants to listen to him. He gets a couple of friends, um, but the powers that be hate him. Um, uh, he's lucky, as it were, well, divinely protected to stay alive on more than one occasion. And the book ends with his being carried off to Egypt against his will after Jerusalem has fallen to its enemy. In human terms, Jeremiah's a loser. And yet... It's the longest book, prophetic book, the one where we get the fullest picture of someone called by God to be faithful. And the preservation of the book of Jeremiah um, and not, you know, the words and thoughts of those who didn't like him. Is, it seems to me, a witness to already in ancient times recognizing what matters most. Um, it's a certain kind of faithfulness and integrity, the searching call to take God's justice and truth seriously, not just to manipulate things for our own purposes and so on. And even if there's no obvious success, which Jeremiah didn't get, um, that book was preserved because ancient Jews saw here is a voice of truth, even if people at the time weren't listening. Nonetheless, this is the guy to preserve, not all those who banged him about and whatever. It makes me think about some of the Psalms that were selected to be passed on. The, the David's cries, uh, feeling his lament. Like I, I find I'm very moved by the laments in Scripture and uh, certainly that in Job. Um, but also David, the, the Psalms of David, where he's crying out to God, where are you? And yeah. the fact that those passages, like you're saying, like these are the ones that are preserved. Yeah. And there's been a really rich rediscovery um, by Old Testament scholars over the last generation, particularly of the importance of lament. Um, because Christians can sometimes give the impression, well, you know, if we know God and God is real, we've got the answers, we should be happy. <laughs> yeah. And as though somehow then you, you shouldn't have problems and pain. And if you do, you're maybe getting it wrong and you're certainly not allowed to vent it or express it. And the Old Testament has no difficulty. There is no doubt that God is sovereign and faithful and trustworthy. 
And there's equally no doubt that periodically the roof falls in um, and life feels terrible, incomprehensible. The ways of God just seem utterly baffling. And the, the honest expression of that is something that, you know, I think Christians have been sort of relearning. Um, you know, it is OK to grieve to cry out in pain, because in a sense, it's part of being honest with God instead of, oh, oh, everything's great, really, when we know it isn't. Okay, we're going to pause right here, and we'll continue this discussion with Dr. Moberly next week as he continues to talk with us about the laments in Scripture and ways grief is expressed. He also shares insights into the book of Job, the pun used by Pharaoh's daughter when naming Moses, and suggestions on ways to study the Bible. So that's next time. And before we go, I want to share three lessons that I want to remember from this conversation with Dr. Moberly. Number one, the Bible is a mansion to be explored. Dr. Moberly has lived most of his life exploring the mansion of scripture, and he invites us all to live in that mansion too, and to enjoy the process of reading and studying the Bible. There are rooms of lament, rooms of beauty, rooms of questions, rooms of wisdom, and certainly many mazes of mystery. And that's all part of the journey of exploring our Bible. The mansion is open to all of us. We just need to step inside and start opening doors. Number two, let's avoid becoming schizophrenic readers of the Bible. Dr. Mobley shared why it's important for us to read the Bible critically as well as spiritually. And his academic work as a scholar and theologian reveals how he's brought these two worlds together. It helps us to see the beauty and complexity of scripture. He's given us a model of how to read and understand the Bible with both academic and spiritual glasses on. It's definitely not easy to do, but he's given us a map and the books and research he has done shows us how to do this. And number three, puzzling passages and parables require us to look more deeply at the themes and or purpose on why that biblical story is included. Serious readers of the Bible shouldn't toss out these texts that don't make sense, but rather think critically on why these stories were passed along and maybe what are some of the themes or the point the author was trying to make. Thankfully, we have academic commentaries and study tools that can help us read and understand these puzzling passages. Now, there are obviously a lot more lessons in today's episode, but those are just some of the takeaways that I want to remember. Which leads me to this week's question. What is a biblical story or passage that has caused you the most frustration? And how have you dealt with it? What were some of the commentaries that you used? I'm really curious to hear your perspective. Let me know by messaging me on Instagram or Twitter at Delgado Podcast. And if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please let me know by rating the show on iTunes and or leaving a comment. Your vote can help this show get more visibility. Thank you so much. Take care and let's talk next week.